Test, test. All right, let's try that. Okay, this morning, we're in Acts 21. We actually make progress, you see, it's possible. When you're in a travel narrative like this, and it's describing a trip from one place to another on a ship and a couple of greetings, you can get through more than one verse in a Sunday. So we've actually went through a bunch of them, and now we're to Acts 21, 7 through 14, as Paul continues on his trip from Miletus, where he had met with the Ephesian elders and had a substantial speech there that uh, was significant and important. We spent a long time on that. And then now we are on our way still to Jerusalem. Now, last week I introduced the idea that the travel to Jerusalem to be rejected is a theme that echoes the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus was on a trip to Jerusalem to be rejected. And that was very significant. Eric and I both talked about the reverse parallel construction of Luke 9.51 to Luke, I think, 19, or the triumphal entry, the center of it about Luke 13, and the themes and ideas. I should get that handed out to people. I have a copy of that. It's pretty amazing. Now, of course, the unique thing is Jesus, as I pointed out last week, is traveling not to Jerusalem as a destination, but to heaven. And that was previewed in Luke on the Mount of Transfiguration where he was speaking with, and I think I showed this to you, he was speaking with Moses and Elijah about his exodus that he was about to accomplish. And the word in the Greek is literally exodus. And the departure is going to be after his death, burial, resurrection. He'll be rejected, crucified, raised on the third day. But Luke portrays Jesus in Luke Acts as traveling all the way to heaven to the right hand of God. And there's a lot of allusions to that. Paul, on the other hand, is traveling to Jerusalem and there are some similarities to the travel narrative of Jesus because along the way, there are people warning Paul through the spirit that he is going to be arrested. His life was in danger and there was trouble awaiting him at Jerusalem. And so today, if we get to the end of this um, PowerPoint, we'll see that that really culminates with Agabus's prophetic action. And so the thing, question we're trying to talk about, we, we did a little bit last week, is that how could it be, if you want to get this in your thought process here, how could it be that the Holy Spirit is issuing the warnings, as we saw, but yet Paul is determined to go? And then Agabus has his prophecy about what's going to happen. And the Holy Spirit is testifying, he, Paul will say, that he is going to be rejected or persecuted and turned over to the Romans by, when he gets to Jerusalem. And then at the end of our session today, if we get that far, we have a little preview. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm not ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus and since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. Now, on the surface, it's not that opaque what's happening, but under the surface, there's a lot of questions. Because the question would be, if God's purpose is that he goes to Jerusalem to be rejected, how could it be that some were saying, by the Spirit, not to go. We saw that last week. So it creates a tension. 
But, um, and, and, I, and I introduced the idea last week as well, that is that there's a similar tension in Luke. Not as intense, it comes up a little, a little more in Matthew, but Jesus announced to his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to be rejected. But it wasn't sinking in. Okay, so there are some things that happen to show that it's not sinking in. And I believe, again, I've been in Matthew lately a lot, so if I get confused between Matthew and Luke, you can please correct me. But I think it's in Luke where they were wanting to call down fire on the enemies. And what that says, now this part of the travel narrative, because there were these Samaritans that were mockers or uh, somebody maybe could find it, but it's in Luke. And should we call down fire? Maybe they're thinking of Elijah. Elijah was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah called down fire. So why shouldn't the Jesus? Moses and Elijah were there. And uh, Jesus is the greater Moses. <clears throat> now, they, but they weren't thinking correctly. Because it really wasn't sinking in that Jesus, the purpose of God was that Messiah would be rejected in Jerusalem. Go ahead, Eric. Uh, Luke 9.54 is the passage you're referring to. And it says, when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Who was the them? Uh, The Samaritan Samaritans. All right. So uh, I hope what I would love to do was to see a hunger for reading the text and learning what the Bible says. It, because the writing is so brilliant. It's, it's Holy Spirit-inspired writing using this, the characteristics of the individual writers. They don't disappear. Luke writes like Luke, but it's from the Holy Spirit. And it's so brilliant. It's a fantastic material. And so is Matthew and John, all, all of the Bible. And we need to learn how to read. And so we've had this astute reading thing going along that I learned from Dr. Versa, but a professor I had who taught that way. He said, we're in this class, it'll be a unique seminary class. We're going to read the text. And on the test, you can use commentaries if you want, but beware, it may hurt your grade. In other words, not all the commentaries are very good at reading the text, or especially the older ones that are parochial. People assume old is good, new is bad. That's absolutely false. Church history is a unit. We're in the last days. We have been since Pentecost. And the fact is the commentaries are way better now. And the reason they're better now is that what's rewarded is having an astute reading, understanding the author's intent. And I have commentaries written by people who aren't conservatives, Tannehill being one of them, Narrative Unity of Luke X. He won't affirm or deny whether Luke actually wrote it, so he calls them the implied narrator. A lot of evangelicals will throw it away and go get their Lutheran commentary or whatever. But he is one of the best at identifying Luke, what his meaning is. Uh, and I got that in the mid-90s, and that's when I got onto the idea through Versaput. And Tannehill, the author determines the meaning, not the reader. Now, the reason the older commentaries are typically, I don't use hardly any of them anymore. They're pretty closely useless because they're parochial. And you can see that even in logo software. You tell them what group you're part of, and then they recommend what you buy. So you have a reform commentary, uh, an Episcopal commentary, a Catholic commentary, a Lutheran commentary, a Baptist commentary, and then they find what they want and make us feel good. But that is a poison pill for learning the meaning of the author because it's anachronistic. Newsflash. There were new Catholics when Luke wrote. 
or Luther's or Presbyterian's or Episcopal, all of these things that we have that are from church history, which are institutional groups with their own prerogatives that they write from, did not exist. Luke was not any of those. So uh, Dr. Versipo was right. If whoever can help us understand Luke in Luke-Acts is contributing to the body of Christ and helping us understand the text. And the better we understand the text, the more light we'll have in our minds about what God said and what God is doing. And the more we'll understand the church, the gospel, the mission of the church, and so on. And that is worth its weight in gold. And most of the parochial battles have to do with formulations from church history that offends different people. What we want to know is what the text says and understand what Luke is telling us. So I can affirm, and I believe there's great data on this, that Luke is showing us Jerusalem rejects the prophets that are sent to her. She rejected Jesus, and now she's going to reject Paul. And that's reinforcing what we learn in Luke because Jesus lamented over Jerusalem to that effect. And we can also avoid the divisive material that keeps coming into any group I've ever been part of. That free will versus election. How about throwing out the categories and just see what the author is saying? And that will make a big difference and uh, you can read however you want to read, 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 and you'll never find a Bible has nothing about election in it. But neither will you find Calvin in there. So read the text. Read Romans. Read Acts. Are we against reading? No. And so if it says, I can't get up there and preach, well, it can't mean what it says. No, I can't do that. It may mean more than what we thought it did, if we can see the whole context, but it won't deny what it says. So what about the calling down the fire? They didn't understand. It's very clear in, in the travel narrative, the disciples don't get it right up to when it all happens. And it took a while after before they got it. Okay. Why would they call down fire on the Samaritans? Well, it's because it's their enemies. When the enemies are mocking, you got to kill them. But at the end of Luke, what happens? Samaria becomes a key part of the Great Commission. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's in Luke Acts. So why do you want to burn up the people that are going to be the ones, some of whom are going to be saved? The mission of the church isn't based on ethnicity. It's based on God's mercy in Christ saving sinners. So with that said, we're going to head to Jerusalem. Now, I made a mistake. There's a, you'll see a map there. Bob, before you, before you move on. Oh, yes. Um, brother. Excuse me. I grew up Baptist, and you mentioned different commentaries, and different commentaries have slants. The ba Baptist commentaries, are you familiar with the Baptist commentaries? Well, uh, there's commentaries published by people of certain schools of thought, like Southern Baptist, or uh, one school of thought that I run into a lot. Uh, who was the guy in the early 20th century who was well-known for being a dispensationalist? Who am I? Schofield? No. Well, Schofield's one, but there's another one. Schaefer. Schaefer, Lewis Berry Schaefer. Yeah, Lewis Berry Schaefer would be but he has his idiocy. That's where this no lordship salvation. Is, is the Baptist roots. commentary more Arminianistic? Is, are they more like free will? Well, no, there's two kinds of Baptists. There's a, there's a specific or Baptist and a general Baptist. The specific would be believing in election and the general Baptist not. But that's, those are big categories as well. And the seminary where I went that had made a turn back toward conservatism required reading Millard Erickson. 
And in the late 80s, Millard Erickson was the theologian of General Baptist or Baptist General Convention. Okay. And, and uh, one of our professors called Millard Erickson a mealy mouth Calvinist. He was, he, there were no rough edges. Okay. But he did, uh, we had to read it. They call it degreed monster. It was about this thick. And then there were readings that went with it. So you read all this different material from theological history all the way back in the early centuries. And so I really did get a broad-based education about what people have said. And, uh, but about the time I graduated, they ditched Erickson because they were going emergent. And then you, all the categories turned into mush, as Eric found out. But in God's providence, I got a fantastic education. Had I not gotten there when I did, I wouldn't have heard said in a class of Dr. Stein, who was one of the best on hermeneutics, the author determines the meaning. That idea, I already had gone to that because of my frustration with all the bad teaching we'd had in the charismatic movement. So sensual, so unstable, this and that. God said this, God did that. This must be running to this conference and that, this great preacher and that great preacher. Unstable, unstable, unstable. Might every once in a while light on something true. A lot of the people we knew in that movement just dropped out, not even serving God. Because um, the instability was so bad. Scripture is not unstable. People are. <laughs> okay. But, I, but how did they interpret the Bible? Typically, God told me it means this, or allegorically. So if you were good at writing science fiction, you'd be a good theologian. No, the author, the, the reader doesn't determine the meaning. The author does. Luke determines the meaning. Dr. Stein, and then Dr. Versaput, we're going to actually read and see what it means. That's what we're going to do. Let's read and see what it means. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we left and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. So notice the we. Luke is on the trip. Luke is with Paul on this trip and on the ships and the different ports they go to. I have a slide on this, but I realize now it's too small. You can't read any of the places. That's my bad. <laughs> I did that. I goofed up. So let me tell you what, you can't even see them on yours. Let me tell you what they are. The first one is Tyre. The, the second place they stay with a name on it is Akko, which was back then. Tolme, Tolme and Akko are the same. The modern name Akko, I think, has been restored. And then Caesarea would be the next one. And then the last place is Jerusalem. I should have removed Jerusalem from it and just used where we got, and you could have read it. So Tolme, and here we come. They leave there. Again, these are ports known in the ancient world. Historically accurate description of the places, the type of travel they would do, how they would travel. All of this is in keeping with what's true in history. So you can trust your Bible. Now, Caesarea, Philip the Evangelist. There were two Philips here in the Gospels, the Philip, the, or the Gospel, Luke Acts. There's Philip, who was an apostle, one of the apostles. And then Philip, who was one of the seven, that is, those who were appointed as deacons to serve because of the busyness of the apostles. Okay, so one of the seven is uh, earlier. Let's see here. Here it is, Acts 6, 3 through 6. Just give you a quick overview. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men, good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we put in charge of this task. And one of those in verse 5 is Philip. 
So that's the person to whom Paul is referring here, that Philip. And so they stayed there. And there were people in these different ports that they would meet that were Christians. And I think I mentioned last week, that's how I view it now. The denominational labels, the institutions, and so on, tell you nothing about who is a Christian. You can go into any big church, and you'll probably find some Christians, but you won't know who they are until you run into them, and you notice you have the same common salvation. In this day, they found them because they were they believe the gospel. It's kind of the same way. God's elect are scattered. They're scattered in Christendom as well as the heathen. And when they hear the gospel, they respond if they believe. All of a sudden, that's what matters, not where they go to church. I hear stories. I just heard one today like that. Uh, We keep I I hear it constantly. I talk to people on the phone. Christy, I talked to that lady, by the way. There's people that just love the Lord, and they're scattered all over. And I hear the same thing for the last 30, 40 years. I don't know where to go to church. Because churches are defined differently now than what they were in the time of the Bible. Church ecclesia means called out into a fellowship of one another, out of the world and into fellowship of one another. Institutional churches have existed for thousands, a couple thousand years, different ones. And they're everything you can imagine. And there's probably Christians in them. If they ever actually heard the gospel, they might light up and say, wow. It happens, just ask Mike Gendron. Uh, but that's, it's Baptist is the same thing. Bethel Seminary was the same way. I ran into people there that had a hunger for the truth, became friends. But I also ran into people that weren't Christian. There was a guy denying the deity of Christ, as far as I thought, in this class, and I rebuked him in class. You're denying the deity of Christ. That's not right. And he, he had some odd reading of Hebrews, so I rebuked a guy in class. Can you imagine I would do something like that? <laughs> Then I felt bad because I made him embarrassed in publicly, but it turned out it didn't embarrass him. So I found him at lunch, went to lunch, and went and found a guy to apologize for calling him out in front of his classmates. And he says, oh, I'm not offended. I don't believe the deity of Christ. There's your Baptist. Well, the next thing you know, they have this... uh, Laurent Schultz, and then who was the guy, the binary reductionism? Doug Doug Padgett. It's not Christian. (laughs) And so you can't find Christians just by going to a thing that has a sign that says church. You find Christians the way they did there. They have a common salvation. We have a love for the truth. We may have different ideas, but the scripture can convince us. Christians can be convinced by the scripture if it's a good reading. Furthermore, one of the most important gifts every Christian has is a love for the truth. And whatever would mitigate that love for the truth, our prejudices about anything and everything, whatever idiosyncrasies, we all have them. What has to be stronger than all those things is a love for the truth. And that love for the truth will eventually cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And it says those who were deceived by Antichrist are those who did not welcome the love of the truth so as to be saved. And if we can be shown that something's true that touches on our mutual salvation, we are putting ourselves in grave danger when we say, I don't like it, I won't listen to it. We can't afford to do that. So that's why we don't demand that people swear to a certain creed. We just keep teaching the truth. 
we affirm what we believe, but keep teaching the truth and people should have a hunger for it. That's why I'll take any commentary written by a scholar based on authorial intent, it will always be helpful. Any commentary that's parochial, sponsored by a denomination or a seminary with a certain idea is going to be suspect. Because they got to pay, they've got to say something that's going to get them published and used in that group. The people who write from the perspective of authorial intent determines the meaning will help anybody, anywhere, anytime. And that idea is sadly rather recent. Sad, sad, sad to even say that. But it, it, Dr. Stein showed why that, why that was utterly absurd. Okay, so Philip was in Samaria in Acts 8. And uh, it says in Acts 8, 4, therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So here's the scattering. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. Verse 7, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. Now here, there were healings going on that were not ginned up by somebody claiming, come to our healing meeting because God showed up in Lakeville or Toronto. It's just what God did, but he was proclaiming Christ. That's what he did. And the conflict happened when the truth of Christ is confronting people who are in bondage under the darkness of the stoichia, the hostile powers. And so that's just what happened. The paralyzed and lame or healed is a creative miracle because you can't suddenly start leaping and jumping if you've been lame all your life, as is the case of these miracles. These things are not happening. I'm not saying they couldn't, but they're not. The New Apostolic Reformation wants them so bad, they'll say they're happening when they aren't. If they had even one valid case, it would be news everywhere. Get the, get the x-rays, the medical proof, limbs that were non-existent showing up, they claim that. And so they're bringing dishonor and shame to the Lord Jesus Christ by making false claims. Laying on graves hoping to get the anointing of a dead saint. Oh. And there's a one-hour video you can get from Brandon Kimber that they have videos of their apostles laying on graves. Amy Simple McPherson, I think, is one. Um, Finney. Um, uh, William Branham. They're, they're trying to get the anointing off of graves. So, dear ones, ditch all that shameful nonsense and cling to the pure unadulterated word of God. And that will not keep you from your miracle by believing God's word. It's just absurd. Well, you're not going to get your miracle if you talk negative or whatever. Well, I don't know. Sad. I'm still alive. I was supposed to be dead five times over, and I don't go around making that my claim to fame like somehow I was pious, so God healed me. No, I'm a wicked sinner saved by grace and it's the mercy of God he would save somebody like me or, or heal me for that matter, but he is a merciful God. You will not end up sick because you simply went and got prayer from the elders as the Bible says. You don't have to go to the miracle meeting. <clears throat> and then Acts 8, 25 through 40, he preached the gospel to an Ethiopian, the eunuch there, you know that one. And so God saved pagans. So that's Philip. Caesarea is another 30 miles south. Ptolemy. Um, Acho is the current name, I think. 
and Philip was important in Acts, but there was also an apostle named Philip in the Gospels. There's my unreadable map. I apologize, Christy. I should have figured... Yeah, I, well, I should have took... Yeah, it's not right. All right, let's go to something readable. This will give us something to talk about. Daughters prophesying. Oh, now I walked into it, right? Let's see. We're not going to skip anything. Acts 21.9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, ESV. NASB said who were prophets, but that's misleading, so that's why I didn't use that. So I looked up the Greek and found out that, oh, here it is. It's the word, it's a verb. This is not a noun, it's a verb. It's actually a participle. So the word prophesied, prophetuo, is in the form of present active participle, plural, nominative, feminine. Yeah, you knew that. I mean, come on, tell me something I didn't know. All right. Well, excuse me for that. I couldn't resist. You could almost say the feminine prophesying ones. Feminine prophesying ones. The norms of language in Greek are quite different than English. For one thing, word order isn't is important for emphasis, but not understanding grammar, whereas English word order is very important. And if you literally, people say, I want a literal Bible translation. No, you don't. You would get disgusted with it. Because we're not going to say the prophesying ones or they were prophesying ones using a participle that way. So here it says who prophesied. They said they're prophets. That's now they turn. They turn. They turned. They turned a verb form that's used as a participle into a noun. That's what changes it. So this is emphasizing what they were doing and what they typically did, rather than an office. It sounds like an office. And so that's where the NAR gets really off track. They have prophetesses and prophets, and they've changed what those things mean. I believe that people prophesy, that men and women prophesy. That's part of the last days. So we're going to look at that. It may probably take most of our time. Now, in Luke X, Luke is a brilliant writer. He sets the stage for this in Luke. What happens in Luke is a preview of salvation. Previews of what God's going to do. Well, we can... uh, Let's start in Acts 2.17, if you want to go there. And then we'll see how this all fits together. There's a theme here. It's important, and it'll help us to know it. Acts 2.17. As the Holy Spirit is poured out, you know about the tongues, and they're speaking about the mighty deeds of God in their own language. Acts 2.17. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Joel 2.28. So let's tease that out a little bit. What's the significance of that? First in the bigger picture of Luke Acts and then in context of Old Testament previews of these things in the Old Testament. The the things that happen are events, prophesying, 
visions, dreams that are associated with the prophets in the Old Testament. That's exactly what happened in the Old Testament. Whether it's Daniel or Ezekiel or any of them. Now, what's significant here is that Joel, in Joel 2.28, predicts that in a coming, at a coming time, this will no longer be as restricted. It will be on all flesh, not meaning every single person on earth, but all sorts of people, including old men, daughters, sons, young men, it's not restricted by age or gender. Is that true? I think I got a good reading there. Now, in order such a, uh, this is how I read Luke Acts. I think, I think it's a good reading. Tannehill sees this as well. The, this is a shocking thing. Luke helps us get ready for it by what happens at the beginning of Luke. What happens at the beginning of Luke? Well, let me show you. Let's go to, wait a second, I have something before Luke, which is the Old Testament. Numbers 11, 26 through 30, let me read that quickly. Eric knows this one, I know, he's already thinking that. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> it's like my old track coach, we, had, we got a new track coach, I was a cross country runner. I liked the technique of the old one. I didn't like how the new one was doing it. So one time he was telling us what we're going to do, which do these 330-yard sprints. And I was sitting there. And he said, Dwayne, I'm sick of what you're thinking. <laughs> Sorry, coach. <laughs> I didn't know he was a mind reader. I was thinking we should be running long distance to practice for long distance. But... All right. Numbers 11, 26 through 30. Do you have it there? Go ahead and read it. Yes. This is uh, Numbers 11, 26 through 30. It says, Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they had prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. So would that all the Lord's people were prophets. So that's a preview to what Joel prophesies to what actually happens in Acts. And in a way that maybe we wouldn't think, and the people that get it wrong has poisoned the well so badly that um, a lot of preachers hesitate to even talk about this. But the fact is it's still true, but not in the sense that People are causing limbs to grow with people that didn't have a limb. It hasn't happened in any of these places that claim that have. But in speaking forth the mighty deeds of God. We'll get to that as I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians. When we get to chapter 12 and chapter 14, I'll address that. What prophesying is. And it's simply... Let me give you the simple definition. Speaking forth the mighty deeds of God, primarily in the context of messianic salvation. Declaring the mighty deeds of God. And it doesn't mean making things up to get a spectacular show. The mighty deeds of God are not there to wow religious consumers. They're there to bring glory and honor to the name of the Lord himself. And when people are converted through the testimony of an old man, a young man, a woman, daughters, sons, 
whoever the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified. And that's the greater. And what sort of things accompany that is in God's providence. You don't get more miracles because you gin up miracles through making false claims. This is part of providence and simple praying for one another. This doesn't tell us what God's not going to do. It's not telling us exactly what he... Go ahead. So I was going to mention... Um... As Peter is citing from Joel 2:28 through 32, the Bob just read from Acts 2:17, where he says, "In the last days, it shall be God declares that He'll pour out a spirit." Remember that happens just prior to Joel chapter three. So make Joel really easy. I think Joel was penned actually very early in the ninth century. Joel one, Joel talks about a locust plague that will come upon Israel because of their sin. If they don't repent. Joel chapter 2 says there's going to be a greater army that comes upon your land. It's going to be the Assyrians followed by the Babylonians. That's the northern army. Well, obviously, they don't repent. That comes upon them. So what's going to be the answer? The people get a little bit better. They try harder. No, he's going to send the Spirit. <laughs> and the Spirit is going to do for the people what they couldn't do for themselves. Amen. That's why in Joel chapter 3, it gets you into the last days. And what culminates at the end of the last days? The restoration of Israel. All the nations will come against her, but this time, Israel isn't judged. They're going to be saved. And it's not the power of man. It's the power of the Spirit. And what Peter is announcing is at Pentecost, that period, the last days, had dawned, just as you've been teaching in the book of Acts. Right. So it's amazing. Um, the difference is the apostolic age is slightly different in the sense the message isn't different, but they were still seeing things that d indicated that these really were authoritative apostles and prophets from Jesus Christ himself. Yes. Jim. I was I was just going to mention for those that don't know it or have forgotten, <clears throat> Eric preached a four-sermon um, on Tale of Two Cities starting February 7th, 19, or 20, see, what was it, 2021. And you can go into the archives and listen to those four teachings. And I just want to say it was so well done. And you talked about that on one of the... Tale of, yeah, I remember that series. Yes. Thank you, Eric. It's very pertinent Babylon, now yeah. with Israel and everything in the last right. days. So, <clears throat> uh, Eric, could you look up Luke 2, 36 to 37? I didn't stick it in my notes here. Absolutely. Oh, wait, I do have it. Hold on. I can do it. Anna. Anna prophesied. Here, I'm, reviews and previews. Reviews and previews. Luke acts full of reviews and previews. Review something God did in Luke. Review something God did in the Old Testament. In Luke, at the beginning, men and women interchangeably prophesy. That's just Luke. Anna is the one who prophesied. Luke 2, 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Verse 20, 38. That very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all of those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Anna. So there's uh, a case of someone who would fall into this, this, this broad category laid out in Joel, and this is a preview. Anna spoke giving thanks and was giving uh, this uh, speech about God <coughs> to those looking for the redemption of Israel. And Mary spoke of the mighty deeds of God. Simeon spoke of the mighty deeds of God. 
So ordinary people that no one heard of were speaking about the mighty deeds of God. Sometimes previews of what God's going to do in Messiah or identifying Messiah. And think of it that way and it will help you. Prophesying is spirit um, anointed, if you want to use that term. Not that anybody's a special anointed one. That's only Messiah. All Christians are anointed. But anointed speech declaring the mighty deeds of God. And everyone who knows the Lord does that. Whether in a very small setting or or in a bigger setting. And God uses us to declare the mighty deeds of God. And we're here to honor his name, to give honor to his name. Who he is, what he did, why we need him. God is a merciful God. His character qualities. If you look at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, you have this barakah, blessed God, blessed be God. In the Old Testament, the Psalms declare the mighty deeds of God. Blessed be God. You have a song. What was the song? Was it Deborah? Who had a song in the Old Testament? God has done mighty things. The horse and rider. Somebody can find that. It's sort of a type of, you could call it literature, but it's a type. Declaring the mighty deeds of God. Yes, uh, Brother Brian. So anytime you're uh, like our uh, evangelism team or uh, us as individuals, anytime you're uh, uh, speaking of the Lord to a non-believer and you're using scripture, you're basically prophesying. Well, it, it, yeah, look at it this way. Yes, in the sense that if you declare the terms of the gospel and declare the promise of God that those who believe on the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he did, his resurrection, his atoning work, the proof he gave of, of his uh, lordship, his ascension, the fact he's coming again to bring judgment to those who are his enemies and salvation to those who are trusting him, eternal redemption, and so on. Those are the mighty, those are, what mightier deed of God, of God is there than what he did in Christ? So you're prophesying the mighty deeds of God. And we also can give the promise, as it's done in the sermons in Acts, that those who repent and turn to him receive forgiveness of sins. You don't get forgiveness of sins because you go to some high holy man and tell him how bad you were and go out with the intent of being bad again. That's not forgiveness. That's just a religious process. True forgiveness is a cleansing that God brings from the inside out that just cleanses away sin and darkness. We're not perfected, but we're forgiven. And we have a hunger for the truth and a hunger to learn and grow and be different because we're living for him and not for ourselves. That's a mighty deed of God. Yes, Jen. Oh, yes. Judges 5, is that Deborah? And did she sing about the mighty deeds of God? Okay. Thank you. Good answer. Good reading. Yes. And then just one more thing. I hate to be picky here, but when you just read uh, about Anna in Luke 2.36, the, the, the term was uh, a prophetess. And we just got through saying that it should, did you not have time to go back and get the better rendering? No, of that? I, no it is, it's not a better rendering. Okay. It's just, we have to get our terms right first. Okay? There's a different use of the term prophet, whether it's in a participle form or a noun. There is a different use than, uh, okay, let me explain it. And get the mic to Luann. Uh, let me explain this. Eric and I have taught about this a lot. There's the foundation the late, talked about in Ephesians. 
the, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ the cornerstone. That's laid once for all. It's already laid. As the gospel goes out and people are converted, they're built on that foundation. That's the church. It's always growing because every time there's a convert, they're added to it. Death doesn't take you away from it. So it's an ever-growing number. The church is always growing through conversion from the, from the very early days to now. Always growing. There's no, uh, there's no foundational apostle and prophet now because that was laid. But that doesn't mean people don't prophesy because that's the characteristic of the last days that goes on from Pentecost till the rapture. And so the prophesying in that sense, functionally, when Paul wrote about the foundation of apostles and prophets, he certainly wasn't talking about everyone who happened to be at Pentecost, was he? No, he was talking about specific people who gave us the faith once for all handed down to the saints. The once for all is important. Nevertheless, don't, well, that doesn't mean we're, okay, let me lay something else out. People are often forcing you to accept terminology from church history that's misleading in and of itself. Okay? So let me give you an example. The continuous and the cessationists. Have you heard those? Well, I, how do I answer that? Okay? How do I answer that? What continues and what ceases? Prophecy. Well, wait a second. I'm telling you prophecy hasn't ceased because we still do it. And God still, by the Spirit, inspires people to declare the mighty deeds of God. Okay? But that doesn't mean I agree with the people claiming to be authoritative prophets and apostles who get new revelations predict things in the future that don't happen and make grandiose claims in order to glorify themselves and make themselves to be something that, uh, that doesn't make any sense. So if somebody asked me, are you a cessationist? It's a loaded question. Because you're going to, you're going to say, I reject this whole part of the church and I'm going to be part of this. Yeah, I'm cessationist in regard to authoritative apostles and prophets. Absolutely. But I'm not cessationist saying God doesn't give gifts anymore. And if the gifts weren't used to bring new revelations that harm the church, most people wouldn't be against them. But the people that believe in the gifts tend to go off the rails in ways that make no sense whatsoever. And so, back to your question, then, Luann. Prophet can be used in two ways. A prophesying one, meaning you may all prophesy by one or two and then the other judge, in a functional sense, or it can be used to describe an office that one occupies. And what happens is the readers confuse the categories. And then the Bible starts not making sense. So they take the term prophet to be an office. But I don't believe when it's referring to Anna, that that's what it meant. Was Anna a prophet? In the sense of anybody in Israel or no, she's a prophet like Elijah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. You want to know what God says, go to Anna. That cannot be what Luke means. Well, that, that, was my, that was my point, Bob, because shouldn't in Luke 2.36, wouldn't a better writing of that be Anna who prophesied, just like it did with the daughters, like the daughters of Philip. I have to get the prophesied. Greek out and see if it's a noun or a verb, but it's not wrong to translate a noun as a noun. But we need to learn the difference. Okay. And uh, I can't get through 1 Corinthians without teaching the difference. And a prophet is speaking authoritatively for God, even 
beyond what uh, you would normally be able to find from Scripture. Go ahead, Eric. I, I, I got to go. Hurry. Um, just 1 Corinthians 14, 29, you may want to just jot that down. It says, let two or three prophets speak. It's exactly the category Bob is referring to as those who don't have the office but prophesy in a functional right. sense because then it says, let others weigh what is said. The term weigh is actually, um, what's our term? Is it diacrino or anacrino? No, it was... Um, Oh, yeah. Dokimatsu. Yeah, okay, Dokimatsu, yeah. and dokimatsu yeah. means to wait to see if it's genuine. Yeah. To put it to the test, see if it's real. Exactly. Dokimatsu, there you go. And the point that Bob and I would make there is we don't do that with Scripture. We don't say, hey, take the prophet Isaiah, and let's all judge to see if it's genuine. Okay, so that right. shows you the distinction in prophesying in the functional sense where we're giving implications and applications of Scripture, but our implications or applications can be judged Whereas Isaiah the prophet can't. Right. If we got the, the scripture right or wrong, or made a valid application, it's, it's controlled by logic, not by mystical impressions. God told me this. That's what these guys. Uh, I'm reading another. I'm rereading another Bill Johnson book for our videos. What I already wrote about. They survey what the prophets are saying to figure out what God said. So you got fifty thousand prophets, and they're all saying this is going to happen, that's going to happen, this is going to happen, and then it's like a Gallup poll about who's going to be the nominee for president. Well, most of them are saying this, so we'll go with that. No! Come on, you guys, you're educated, you're adults, you know the English language, you can't do any better than that? I, it, just, it drives me nuts. With Jessica and I did this thing with that Dutch sheets. There was hardly a verse he ever referenced and got it right. Wrong, 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 wrong. Every single time. Dear ones, do you not want you don't don't want that to happen to you? Stay with your rational mind and objective truth. Mystical impressions don't lead you to the truth. Lohan, you're so patient. I just wanted to add it. It's a, probably a minor point, but Deborah, who actually you know, talked about the horses, it came from Miriam. And the reason that they could recite that later is because Miriam was a reliable witness. She was there for the miracles of the Exodus. Amen. So, you know, I mean, that is, again, following the text and somebody who was a reliable witness. But in um, Exodus 15, 20, Miriam is called the prophetess, sister of Aaron. Good, good reading. Excellent. Uh, dear ones, the fact is, doing it this way, searching the scriptures, discussing it, correcting each other, trying to see the best reading, because that's what stands, that's what's binding, is what I believe is biblical, thereby the sons and daughters and young men and old men will be prophesying. And we, Eric and I, resist those who demand you silence every woman. I don't believe that that's biblical because it's not in keeping with what we see here in Luke Acts. That's not right. We want the best reading, whoever it came from. And uh, when it comes to whose elders is the only restriction, and that we didn't create that one, Paul did, when he talked about Eve having been deceived, so we know it's not just cultural. So does that make sense? We'll keep doing this. We'll keep searching. But I promise you, the more you understand how the whole Bible fits together from Genesis to Revelation, you just get excited. I do. And I can keep learning and learning. And it keeps me young. Just keep studying. The trouble is I've been, well, this is not trouble. I'm so healthy. I don't get as much time to sit in the doctor's office studying. I have to discipline myself to sit at the computer. Yes, Jan. How would you answer someone who says Ephesians 4.11, what talks about the gifts, apostles, prophets, pastors, yeah. teachers? They say the apostle, they're still apostles and prophets because there's still the other gifts, the teacher and the evangelist and the pastor. Well, there, there's another passage in Ephesians or in the Aorist tense talks about the foundation having been laid of apostles and prophets. That's earlier. Okay? And um, 
the people who say they're still apostles and prophets in the biblical sense, when pushed on it, say, well, we're not claiming we write scripture. That's what Bill Johnson and Bickle and these guys do. But then they make pronouncements. I mean, honestly, you can prove, for one thing, Bill Johnson, who is supposedly this great apostle, blasphemes Jesus Christ by denying his deity, saying he lost his deity when he died on the cross. So I wrote an article about that. You can't do that. If you love Jesus, why are you blaspheming him? And you know what? They will not talk to me. They will not answer. They will not say a word. We have all these people. We've got all this great thing. We ignore anybody. We're being divisive if you talk to critics. No, it's not, a, uh, it's not a minor thing whether Jesus Christ is eternally God and in an incarnation continues to be God and does not lose his deity. That's not minor. And I have a whole chapter on that, or a whole section on that. They won't answer. So we have to sit and watch these blasphemers poison the minds of our children and other Christians and claim they're the great people of God that are on the cutting edge and they won't even give us the time to prove that Jesus lost his deity. Or answer the question about contingency. Is deity contingent? And the answer is no. True deity is not contingent. It's it's part of the essential attributes of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit being God. So go for doctrine, go for rationality. They don't believe in rationality and doctrine. Use it anyhow. Norm Geisler's gun. Rationality is how humans have to exist. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy. May we keep studying together and learn and grow. Thank you for Pastor Eric and be with him as he teaches the word of God to us. And may we be good readers and look at the scripture and test things and help each other uh, to grow. Thank you, Lord, for everything you've done. We give you the glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.